Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. The first thing I learn on my trip to the Strait of Hormuz is that I won't be spending much time out of doors. I land in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates on the southeastern shore of the Persian Gulf. And when I walk out of the airport, I'm hit by a wall of heat and humidity that seems beyond possible for the planet. The app on my phone says the heat index is 123 degrees, and it's just after midnight. My glasses fog up, and I feel dizzy. I order an Uber, and he's close by, but it's difficult to walk. My legs are heavy. I'm dripping with sweat. Thank God the Uber is a Lexus, a plush ice box slightly scented of mint with a Pashtun driver dressed as an English chauffeur. My situation is obvious. Outside bad, inside good. Outside is hostile terrain. Inside is the course of empire. The Lexus glides along a smooth, illuminated freeway, elevated among other elevated, illuminated freeways, linking clusters of ornamental skyscrapers that look like neon earrings or a necklace adorning the breast of the Persian Gulf. Or think of the Persian Gulf as a bladder, 600 miles long, 200 miles wide, a bladder that fills with oil. The land surrounding the bladder holds 30% of the world's oil supply. Iran to the north, Kuwait and Iraq to the west, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates to the south. The oil comes out of the ground and is piped to ships offshore. And when they are full of oil, they exit the Gulf the bladder through a narrow, urethra-like passageway called the Strait of Hormuz before releasing into the Indian Ocean. The city of Dubai, with three million people, is just south of the Strait of Hormuz, along what used to be called the Pirate Coast, because throughout history, the Strait of Hormuz has been a perfect place for pirates. Back in the Bronze Age, three to 5,000 years ago, the Strait of Hormuz was halfway between the civilizations of Mesopotamia and the Indus River Valley. Merchant ships loaded down with copper and tin, pearls and frankincense were easy prey for lighter, quicker boats. The Strait of Hormuz is only 30 miles wide. Pirates could come out of hidden coves, attack a ship, take it back to their harbor, and get home in time for dinner. Now, in the Strait of Hormuz, there are super tankers carrying 20% of the world's oil supply. Iran, which sits along the northern shore of the strait, has threatened to close the passageway if economic sanctions imposed by the United States are not lifted. This, in effect, would be a declaration of war, a world war involving the threat of nuclear weapons. Everyone hopes this doesn't happen and most people don't think it will happen because it's hard to imagine the level of carnage, destruction, and insanity. But then so it was before Sharpsburg and Verdun and Hiroshima. So I want to go to the Strait of Hormuz just to see it, to see what it's like to live here now in the place where a new world war may begin.
In the morning, from my hotel window, I stare straight at the sun as it comes above a horizon that's been smeared with barbecue sauce, air pollution. An app on my phone says the air quality index is 160, highly unhealthy, close to hazardous. I search the web for as to why, and it seems the answer is growth in population and the consumption of fossil fuels. In 1961, shortly after oil was discovered, the population of the Arab Emirates was 100,000. Now it's 10 million. That's a hundredfold increase in two generations. Most of this increase is from guest workers from South Asia, India and Pakistan and Bangladesh coming to build the steroidal skyscrapers and freeways and shopping malls. One of the shopping malls has a ski slope. These workers now account for 90% of the population, but they have no real path to citizenship. The remaining 10% are native Emiratis, among the richest people on the planet because they control 10% of the world's oil supply. And yet they have almost no water, or no fresh water. They depend upon desalination plants that use electricity produced by burning oil to provide drinking water for 10 million people, a few of whom go skiing inside a shopping mall. I don't want to go outside, but I have to, because how else will I learn what it's like to live here? First, I walk around the block. I'm in what's called the old part of the city, a shop selling parts for air conditioners next to one with dates and roasted nuts, next to a restaurant with chicken masala, and then a small mosque. I see men, but no women, and no Emiratis. They don't live in this part of town. Apparently, I'm the only one who's sweating. My pants are wet around the loins, so I go back to my room to dry out. Slaps. Live. Stories. Simply social. The most connected show in the UAE with Next, I start taking taxi cabs, not Ubers, for short distances, just to have someone to talk to. The cars are older models, and the drivers are from Bangladesh. They come to work for 18 months or three years, and then go home for three weeks to three months. Then they come back, because they can make two to three times the money here. $1,800 a month, living in close quarters, sleeping among other men in small rooms. I ask a driver if the workers ever protest for more money and better living conditions, and he says, sir, this is their country. We are here by invitation. So you like it here, I ask? Yes, he says. The Emirati people are very friendly, and it's very safe here. Are you worried there might be a war, I ask. He's reluctant to answer, but then says, we don't talk about these things because we are here by invitation. You feel like you're being watched, I say. Yes, he says. And if you cause trouble, you'll be deported. Yes, he says, for certain. But you like the king, Zayed, I say. Yes, he says. He's a wise and generous man. And what about his princes, I ask? He looks at me and bobbles his head and says, they're the same. So I think it's going to be difficult, maybe unwise and not generous, 
to try to get a cab driver or any of the working class to open up and talk on tape. In order to meet some of the Emiratis, I go to the Dubai Mall. Not the mall with the ski slope, but still monumental in scale, with shops selling things I never could or would buy. The Emiratis are there, strolling in groups of three to four, men with men, women with women and children. The children wear the latest fashion, while the adults all wear traditional clothing. The men in white sheets that reach to an inch and a half above the marble floor. The fabric looks to be of the finest cotton, but without a wrinkle. No wrinkles anywhere. Around the chest and collar, the fabric is gathered into fine, very precise geometric lines. Every hair on the beard and scalp is trimmed and in place. On top of the head, there's a white scarf starched into the shape of flapping wings and tied in place by a double strand of black rope once used for hobbling their camels. The women are cloaked in black, a black matte fabric that has no lines or shadows. It absorbs all light and covers everything except the feet, hands, and face. Sometimes only two eyes can be seen peering from this negative space. I stare at them and they stare back betraying no hint of emotion or the thought that might be in their minds. The men, on the other hand, act as though I'm invisible. I walk up to some of the men, those walking alone by themselves. I ask if they might answer some questions for the radio story I'm working on. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that the Emirati men in the shopping mall, just like the expatriate cab drivers on the street, will not or cannot talk on the record. They don't even want to tell me their names, but they will talk a bit off tape. They're polite, well-educated, and speak English as though they went to college in the US or the UK. I ask them, are you worried there might be a war between the US and Iran? And each one tells me, no, it's not gonna happen. One man with a slight punch says, this is all gamesmanship and Donald Trump is a master gamesman. He's applying maximum pressure, his form of diplomacy, and he will win. A young man with immaculate grooming says, Iranians shout loudly in an argument, making big threats, but if you challenge them, they back away. They're afraid to fight. An older gentleman who hasn't shaved in two days says, the Shia are bad, not to be trusted, but their military is nothing compared to the U.S. Iran will not bring this destruction upon itself. But don't you feel vulnerable, I ask? Iran has missiles that can hit your power plants and then you wouldn't have any water or air conditioning. We have our own missiles, he says, from the United States that will hit their missiles in the air. We're prepared for this kind of attack. As for why these men won't talk on tape or tell me their names, they don't really know who I am, and there are cameras everywhere. I ask one guy if he's okay with the cameras, and he says we accept the surveillance because it keeps us safe. Everyone keeps telling me this is a safe place. <laughs> والصلاة القائمة 
In the middle of the night, I stumble out of bed to the bathroom and slip on the marble floor that's still wet from the shower I took before going to sleep. I go down like an old man, crunching my shoulder and banging my head on the floor, and I don't get up. I don't want to get up until I remember where I am. I hear the fan of the air conditioner and remember that I'm afraid to go outside because it's on fire and I'm supposed to write it down, but I don't have my notebook or a pen and I can't remember my name. In the morning, I decide it's time to go to the Strait of Hormuz. I consult the map app on my phone and it looks like the easiest way to go would be on a boat, sailing north up the coast for 100 miles, then turning right to starboard where the strait begins. But this route is problematic because the Strait of Hormuz lies between Iran and Oman, not between Iran and the UAE. So if I went on a boat, I'd end up in Oman without a stamp in my passport. I need to cross the border by land on the highway that runs north along the coastline because there's a customs office there. So I take a taxi, and then a bus, and then a taxi, and another bus. The terrain heading north for the first 80 miles or so is flat and covered by sand dunes. But at the border with Oman, the sand dunes meet the mountains of the Musandam Peninsula, which on a map looks like a little finger sticking up and almost touching Iran. The space in between is the Strait of Hormuz. The mountains of the Musandam dive straight into the ocean as cliff faces, yellow limestone. The water is turquoise to light green, and there are long, beautiful beaches, but no one is on them because it feels like 130 degrees out there, and the water is warm, no relief. On the bus traveling through the mountains, I am the only white man. The driver is Omani. All the other passengers are guest workers from South Asia and Western China. From the top of the mountains, coming down to the harbor of Kassab, I can see how the Musandam Peninsula fractures into islands, reaching out into the Strait of Hormuz. But the air is so polluted, everything fades into haze, and there's no chance of seeing Iran, only 30 miles away. The small city of Kassab is built on top of a gravel floodplain from a river gorge coming out of the mountains and spilling into the ocean. There's no water in the riverbed, and it looks like there hasn't been any since the Portuguese were here in the late 1600s and built a fortress, still standing, with cannons aimed at the ocean. The city now survives on fishing, tuna and sardines, and trading back and forth with Iran. Small boats carrying electronics and consumer goods from Dubai cross over to Iran, and then they come back with livestock and vegetables. In the town harbor, there are 50 to 60 of these small boats, all open skiffs 25 feet long, powered by one or two 200-horsepower outboard motors. Most have open hulls for cargo, but some have benches and seats to take tourists out among the islands for scuba diving and dolphin watching. I find a tourist boat with a barefoot captain and ask if he'll take me out to the shipping lanes in the middle of the strait where I can see the oil tankers and military vessels passing back and forth. His name is Ali, about 40 years old, bald with no hat 
and he speaks just enough English to be suspicious of my request. You don't want for swimming or looking for dolphins, just for ships, he asks. Yes, I say. Why, he asks. Because I'm a journalist and I want to go there and see what it's like, I say. But he doesn't understand the word journalist, and maybe I don't either. So I say, because I think there's going to be a war with Iran and it'll begin out there. Now he looks confused and even more suspicious. Maybe I'm a spy and he could get in trouble with the authorities. He starts trying to back out. Today, he says, the air is too much smoke. Maybe you cannot see the ships. He's right. Visibility is three, maybe five miles. But I tell him I still want to go and offer him a hundred bucks. And he says, okay. We motor out of the harbor to open water where Ali gives the gas to the 200 horsepower engine and we are flying, surfing and pounding the waves and water's flying up in my face. Being on the water is so much better than being on the land. There's another skiff on the water. Ali slows down and pulls alongside. The boat has two men and a whole herd of small goats, as well as some gasoline and plastic tanks hidden under a tarp. Ali talks to the men, tells me to turn off my tape recorder, and asks if I have 20 bucks for one of the 12-gallon tanks of gas. It takes about a half hour to get out beyond the islands into the open strait. In the distance, I see vague silhouettes of two oil tankers and a military vessel. They might be five miles away, but it's hard to tell because the air is Vaseline. Ali slows to an idol, and we sit there, the water turned to glass, the boat rocking on long, smooth waves. Can we go farther out? I ask Ali. No, he says, and offers no explanation. He's the captain. It's his boat. So this is it. I've come to the Strait of Hormuz, and there's very little to see because the air is so polluted. The sun broils down upon me. Time and distance disappear. I've arrived in purgatory. I ask Ali if he thinks there will be a war with Iran. He ponders a bit, holding the steering wheel even though we're not moving, and then he says, no, inshallah, God willing. Okay, I say, let's go back. New satellite images show the ship docked in the port city of Bandar Abbas. It's now flying an Iranian flag. The next day, I find out by watching CNN that Iran has taken a British-flagged oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz and that it happened while we were out on the water, only about 10 miles away from where we stopped. Some of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard flew out there in a helicopter and descended by rope to the deck of the ship the Stina in peril, and then forced it to the nearby Iranian port of Bandar Abbas. It was an act of piracy using a helicopter. I bet they got home in time for dinner. But apparently the siege of the tanker is of no major concern around here. The papers in Dubai are running only the international coverage, no local reporting, and the people I talked to, like the concierge in my hotel and the guy who sat next to me at lunch, 
They didn't even know about it. And when I told them, they shrugged it off. I feel like Henny Penny running around yelling the sky is falling in a foreign land on the other side of the world. And it feels lonely. But it's a good thing overall because it means I'm wrong and there won't be a war. So I'm going to let it go for now. Stop thinking about it. I'm hanging out in a hotel room in Dubai, waiting for my plane ride back home, switching the TV between the riots in Hong Kong, Donald Trump speaking at a rally, and a call-in for spiritual advice show. The host taking calls is a woman sitting at a table with a painting of the Quran on the wall behind her. She's wearing a black cloak that covers everything, including her face and hands. She's blank space. All you see is a white pen she uses to take notes and wave in the air when she talks. On the bottom of the screen, there are the phone numbers to call. I wonder what I would ask if I called. Probably, how will the world end and when? And I bet her answer would be, only time will tell. I'd like to thank everyone around the world who listens to this show. I hope you live in a beautiful place where the air is clear most days and it's not too hot in the summer. Check out our website, homebrave.com, for some photos from the UAE and Oman and the Strait of Hormuz. Also on the website, there are buttons to push to donate and subscribe. If everyone who's listening now donated four to eight cents, less than a dime, I could cover the expenses for this story. If everyone donated a dollar, I could cover 12 stories, something like that. You can donate a dollar a month by subscribing through PayPal if you want. Lots of small donations really add up and keep this show on the air. So thank you very much. I couldn't do this without you.